What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Corporate Bartender. Today's episode is fantastic. Our guest today is Claire Chase. If you don't know Claire, you should, because she's amazing. Claire Chase, PhD, is the creator of the Resilience Thinking Method and the founder of Resilience by Design Consulting. She's a natural strategist, and she loves solving puzzles, finding patterns, and helping guide her clients to resilient futures. She's coached leaders across a variety of industries and has a fantastic TEDx talk that I know you're going to want to check out. She got her PhD from CU Boulder, and she lives down in Denver with her husband and two kiddos. So kick back, get your resilience hat on, and let's get right on into it with Claire Chase on today's TCB. Welcome to Sky Team's The Corporate Bartender. If you work in HR or make people decisions in your organization, this is the place to be. Now pull up a stool, belly up to the bar, and join us for The Corporate Bartender. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Hey, Vaughn. How's it going? Right on. Chuck, where are you? Are you in the abs locker room? No, just working out, pumping some iron. Working out. (laughs) Yeah. You guys are not, it's not so important that I can't get my work in. Just do some reps over here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can tell, obviously. <laughs> Chuck's yeah, been I'll doing be curls all afternoon. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'll be are you cooking, cooking soon. I'll be cooking dinner in like five minutes. So what yeah. are we, what are we having for dinner tonight? I'm ready. Pork loin and um, zucchini and noodles. Yum. Mm. That sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on calls all day. I haven't had lunch, so that's extra mean right now, Yvonne. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is like six o'clock here, so <laughs> I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Sorry about that, Eric. No worries. <laughs> and we're getting snow in the DMV. What? Yeah. So Super that means everything's exciting. already cl- everything's already it's closed, all closed right? down and there's no <laughs> toilet paper anywhere. No. <laughs> So, so Yvonne, Yvonne lives in Maryland in the DC Metro and that's where I grew up. And whenever they say it's going to snow, two things happen. Schools close before it even snows. Um, and you can't buy milk or toilet paper. And in, in, in my 20 some odd years of living in that area, we had one snowstorm that basically, you know, caused us to be housebound for more than one day. Yeah, that warranted the the actual getting of milk and toilet paper. Yeah. I'm like, how much toilet paper are you using a day? (laughs) And why does snow create the need for more of it? Yeah. Well, honestly, we don't know what we're doing as it relates to driving or surviving in snow here in this area. Because we get it like literally maybe really good snow once a year if we're lucky. Right. Yeah. And and people just don't know what to do. But I but like I always say, Yvonne, it happens every year. It's not a surprise. Right. <laughs> just need your snow closet of gear. <laughs> right. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to the bartender, episode 73. If you can believe that, we are already halfway through February. I have a feeling we'll be doing that Christmas episode before you know it. Thanks for being here today. <laughs> um, 
As we always do, let's get right on into the agenda. It looks like we do have one newbie here today, so we'll do our newbie intros. She's waving. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll let her know about some of the resources that are available to her. Then we're, we've got an awesome, awesome guest today, Claire Chase. Say hi to everybody, Claire. Hi, I'm so, so happy to be here. Such a fun group. I'm so actually really excited. <laughs> I wore this for Claire today. <laughs> Oh, yes. Wow. You've done your research. I am a SLU alum. That's oh, my hard. God. So is my husband. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. Small world. Also. See, Claire, this group does its homework. <laughs> I'm impressed already. <laughs> All right. So we're going to be talking about resilience thinking with Claire today. She's got a she's got a method. She's got some offerings. She's going to share her perspective and it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll do our normal end of show routine, funny stuff, good feels and a silly, silly cocktail. So let's get into the intros. Miss Lori Freemeyer, we always ask people to tell us who they are, what they do, where they are. And one really, really boring fact about themselves. It probably wouldn't appear on a resume, perhaps. <laughs> um, well, I'm delighted. This is a very vivacious group, so this looks like fun. I am in sunny but chilly Denver, actually a little bit south, in Castle Rock. Oh, right on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Morag, I've known Morag for a long time. And she said, hey, you should join this little group here. And I'm like... Let me check it out. But I'm um, delighted to be here and to get to know everyone. Already we have a Lori Club going. I like this. Spelled the correct <laughs> way. Um, but actually, um, I am a person who probably, people might say, gets bored easily. I, I am currently a full-time flight attendant. And uh, I'm actually flying. I work for the hometown team, Frontier, who we have been treated really, really well. Nice. They have not laid off a single person. And um, I'm, I'm actually one of the trainers. So it's been a, a very interesting last year, to say the least. But I love it. I love to fly. I love to travel. I love people. And moving into that, I decided to formalize my coaching background. And I'm getting certified to be a life coach currently. And it's oh, nice because I can drop down to part time flying and still do that. So I can keep my benefits, which is the main reason. But um, yeah, one little known fact about me is I used to be a first lady. Well, are we, about are, we, are, are we going yeah, <laughs> to yeah, learn more? Are we going to leave that right there? <laughs> Donald Trump was married a lot of times. So I'm not going to discount it. Not me. <laughs> um, no, uh, actually, my husband's from Iowa. Go Hawkeyes, I'll say that, because I did I got my master's at Iowa. So yeah, great school. Um, I spent most of my life in Colorado, but we we did a, a long stint in Iowa. And Iowa, of course, is a political hotbed, but he was mayor for eight years. And um, it was a lot of fun. It was very fun. We met some, I have some really cool pictures from over the years. And um, still to this day, he, he knows quite a few players. He does a lot of consulting in the political world. But um, yeah, I, cool. I tell people I don't wear my tiara anymore, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 welcome, Lori. It's, it's great to have you here. It's great to be among a dignitary. We don't get that often. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I love that you mentioned the Lori Club because the Lori's are really specific about how you spell it. And when you spell it the A-U way, you get, you get 
pushed out of the lorry club. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, it's good to see some, some, some old friends. Hey, Mike, how you doing, buddy? Oh, you're muted there, bud. So 2020, Mike. <laughs> the dog's barking in the background and I'll talk in between there. It's good to, good to be back. I apologize. I've been so infrequent. Yeah, no worries. No worries. There, there's no shame here at the bartender. You, <laughs> you, you, you come when you need a fix. That's, that's what you do. That's right. Chuck's Chuck's like an addict now. He's here every week. So <laughs> I, am, I actually don't even hang up the zoom at the end of every call. I just wait. <laughs> I'm going to have to go through the recordings, Chuck, to see what's going on. <laughs> oh, awesome. All right. Well, hey, let's go remind folks, because uh, I push it every week, um, and to let Lurie know, we do have another place where we hang out. Um, it's a little social network, private social network called uh, the Corporate Bartender Network. It's over on the-corporate-bartender.mn.co. And you can get the Mighty Networks app for your phone and, and just do it on your phone. It's a pretty cool place. We share some stuff. Um, we had some really, really good articles shared in there this week. Um, one about uh, from Salesforce about how they just jumped into the you don't ever have to come back to work club, um, which I thought was interesting. You know, we've talked a lot here about those those hybrid options. Uh, I think Laura Chapin posted that, but they're going to do three things. They're going to give people, uh, they're going to have a small contingent of, of folks who will come into the office every day. They're going to have a three day a week hybrid option, and they're going to have a work from home, work from anywhere option, which is interesting because they just completed a, a tower in San Francisco um, that cost them over a billion dollars to build. Um, but it was interesting in reading that article talking about how they're going to reconfigure office space into more, you know, huddles and common spaces for people to get together when they happen to be there, even post COVID versus rows of desks, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, news articles today, just got a couple for you, a couple of HBRs right uh, on our topic today around resilience. The first one here, um, it's pretty fresh, came out on January 29th. It's called The Secret to Building Resilience. And I loved this article. It, it basically, um, basically says that the ability to bounce back from setbacks is, is not a solo sport. It actually, the one, the one line summary of the article made me think of Morag because we, we talk about high performance. And uh, she always says, Work is the biggest team sport that most of us will ever play. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. The research that they reference in the article say that resilience is enabled by strong relationships and networks. And I thought that was really timely given our topic today and what the bartender's all about. We're all about workplace relationships and, and building our networks. Um, so it, it goes on to say that interactions with people in both personal and professional lives help us alter the magnitude of the challenge that we're facing, um, help us remember our purpose and give us some perspectives. And I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. Um, so that's one. And I'll put these links over on the network as well. The second one uh, is called Seven Strategies to Build a More Resilient Team. And it's similar to the ideas in the first article, 
basically it, it, it talks about how the pandemic revealed those teams that had a higher resilience um, and those that didn't. Um, and it basically breaks the key skills down into candor, resourcefulness, compassion and empathy and humility. And we've talked a lot about about all of those things over the last year. And uh, it's it's proving itself out in the research. I see I see Claire nodding her head. So that's a good sign when the Ph.D. nods her head about a thing that you're talking about today. It's a good thing. So a couple of articles. Um, question for you. I was wondering, uh, we put this out last week. Did anyone go check out the HBR webinar? Laurel did. Hey, Laurel, can you tell us about it? Depends on how many mute buttons I have to un <laughs> undo here, but at least I'm I'm not a cat. Um, let me find my notes here. It was an excellent webinar. Um, I I wasn't too sure about you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, is this Harvard guy gonna think he's better than the rest of us? But he he was uh, he is. But yes. <laughs> but other than that, um, trying to find where I put my notes. But uh, anyway, he, he was just—he was very practical about talking about the things that get in our way when when business is bad, when the economy is bad, people tend to hunker down. When in fact. This is the time if you're cutting staff or doing other things like that, you should be doing so with an eye to the future. Looking at Starbucks as an example, saying, okay, they weren't mm. built for drive-through. Um, so they've had to be repositioning their whole model. And by the time we come through COVID, They'll be they'll be ready to roll. They'll be mm -hmm. back up and running and in great shape. Whereas those who are just trying to wait it out until it's over and we go mm. back to normal, there's not going to be a normal for them. So talked a lot about inertia, and there's um, corporate inertia, organizational inertia, personal. Uh, cultural, rather, inertia. And people who are stuck in that, well, it, you know, it's worked for the last 20 years, so to work for the next 20 years, this is just Eight. a flip. Uh, and finance won't let me spend any money. Um, and, and so he kept going back to that. And he kept saying, you know, these finance people are always wanting to cut. That's the only thing they know to do. Right. So what you need to do is help them innovate and yeah, you might have a small investment on the front end, but walk them forward to the savings it'll yield. Yeah. You know, whatever your ROI is, whether it's six months down the road, 12 months down the road, and that sort of a thing. And your silos uh, for that organizational inertia. He said, you're never going to bust your silos. So do not try to bust your silos because power floats to the top. And those guys have a vested interest in staying at the top. So bridge the silos, find ways, create ways for them to be um, incentivized to work together for the corporate good. 
Um, it's so create bridges, don't try to blow them up because it'll just be frustrating and you'll just leave dynamite chars everywhere. Um, and then culturally, if you need to make change, this is the time and you have to work hard at this because it's the two thirds of the iceberg. It's what nobody sees. It's just, I mean, I've always called it how you get shit done, but it's <laughs> the, un, it's the, the unwritten rules. So it may mean removing some people in a cost savings gesture <laughs> who are, he didn't quite put it that way, but yeah. you could read between the lines. Um, yeah who are the wrong culture to move forward. And he kept going back to never lose the opportunity to take advantage of a good crisis and really use this to your advantage. And don't be like Sears. And, and yeah. he walked quickly through the, the Sears story and said, hey, they were you know best retailer in the world, first catalog, first you know place to sell appliances as they saw baby boomers were starting to buy homes and stuff. And then they got complacent. Um, so you always have to have your eye on the customer and what the customer needs and demands. And that was, that's probably the, the bottom line. If you want to know where to focus, it's what is my customer demanding? What are they going to want five years from now, even five months from now? And how are we building toward that? So, I mean, I could go on and on. It was, it was fascinating. It was quite well done. That's awesome. I, I wonder if there'll be a replay somewhere. I'm sure there will be. We'll have to keep it. I don't know. I'll, if I get it, I'll, uh, I'll try to share it. Yeah. Post it over on the network. I, I loved a couple things that you said, you know, you talked about the Sears story. Um, the one that always pops to my mind when I think about that is Kodak, right? The inventor yep. of the digital camera, right? Mm -hmm. Um, put that up sitting, <laughs> right. <laughs> sitting in the, sitting in the prime position in the market and just missed it, just missed it. And, uh, two other things that you said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Right. I, th I think that's, that's legit advice, right? Because uh, yes. a lot of times, a lot of times it takes, it takes the crisis to get us out of our pattern. Yep. Um, and I, I say this all the time, right? Morag called it first. You know, yep. two days, two days in, she was like, this is a year. And she's already said this is another year. And so yep. because of that swift action, we made changes and spent money yep. that was a risk because we didn't know if we were going to have revenue. Right. We didn't know right. if we could pivot and do it this way. Turns out yep. we can. Yeah. Um, the other one he talked about was uh, Netflix and Blockbuster. Oh, Yeah. And uh, I am currently reading No Rules Rules. So if you haven't read that one, mm -hmm. read it. Um, but he said quite simply, uh, Blockbuster didn't, or Netflix didn't kill Blockbuster. Blockbuster, Blockbuster killed, Blockbuster. killed Blockbuster. Right. <laughs> and in No yeah. Rules Rules, they tell the story of going there and saying, why don't you buy us? Buy uh, what? <laughs> yeah. I, I tell my kids, I tell my kids all the time. Back in my day, Netflix used to send DVDs in the mail. <laughs> it's, and they're it's like, funny they're like, what's a DVD? I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, and and in No Rules Rules, they tell the story of that model. And they, they didn't have DVDs yet. They heard it was coming. So the guy yeah. went 
to the post office and mailed himself 10 CDs because they had CDs to see if they'd survived the postal system. Wow. Wow. What were you going to say, Evans? I heard you chiming in there. Yeah, sorry, Evans. Oh, no worries. I, I was just about to say we're watching Friends right now and uh, watching with our kids. And we're watching in 4K so you can really see everything in the background. And it's so funny because you'll see like blockbuster videos stacked. Mm -hmm. It's just this, it's like eight tracks. It's this artifact of a bygone era. It's incredible. So when I was doing competitive intelligence at Western Union, we were, so we ended up, um, we had to listen to, I had to listen to a lot of different earnings releases. And one was around Redbox. And it was funny because they were talking about you can find a and they were they were really snarky about it. They were like, "Well, you can you can easily find a a red box. Just look 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 for a, an empty blockbuster, and you'll find a red box within like a block." And they're they're still hanging on, but you look at the streaming services that are out there now, and it's just a completely different game, and every, everything changes. But I, I think that. You've got this knife's edge that you kind of have to dance on, right? Because Jobs said, Steve Jobs said, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, um, he's going back to Henry Ford. He said, he said, if I asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me faster horses. They wouldn't have thought about an automobile. So then Jobs was trying to think about trying to go where I like what I like where Jobs was was because in his mind he was trying to go where the pirates were. So he was looking at like Napster, Kazam, Morpheus. And then trying to help to legalize a lot of that by making it popular and making a buck off of it. So I think you start to you start to look at these places where you can't be too far ahead, but you've also got to be innovative. It, it's such a cool dance, but you know you're you're totally risking your lifeblood. Yeah, what's what's so interesting to me too is that in all these examples, um, just like resilience, it's not a destination, and mm. so even the innovation becomes a cycle where you can't, you can't be complacent. You can't just like the red box, like that was innovation, but then you, they really need to innovate on that. And so that kind of cyclical nature seems really critical. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, he did make the point that you have, that we usually ask customers the wrong questions. Right. So that's <laughs> your point. And so we miss their cues. So what we're looking at is we want we want it fast, we want it cheap, we want it delivered to our door and all of that. Yep. Customers may not articulate that in the same way. And, mm -hmm. you, know, that you just nailed it because I think that I think that sometimes we get really, really um, I hate to use this word, but here it is. Uh, it, it's like it, it's like this myopic, incestuous mindset. So we become really familiar with a particular vernacular, right? And we think mm -hmm. that everybody knows what that what we mean and, and what our stuff does. Look, if you've got somebody who's got knocks in the engine or they've got a stomach ache, that's what they're going to call it. Hey, my engine's making weird noises. Hey, my stomach hurts. You go mm -hmm. to see a doctor. And they're like, ah, okay, well, here's what that actually is. And so, you know, to your point, I think, I think that there's, in terms, of, in terms of trying to really communicate and make sure that we're meeting people's needs, we have to speak their language instead of expecting them to speak ours. 
Um, right. I hope that's making sense. It's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. The one quote that I'll pass along because it was my favorite is leaders are not victims. Mm. So mm. you think of the blockbuster example <clears throat> and it's, oh yeah, well, we were victims of a shifting economy or a new technology oh, right now. Oh, I, I, I get it. <laughs> For a second, I was like, what? Huh? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm with you. Hey, look, um, if you're missing a step and you snooze, you lose, that's part of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and th- that takes me back to something that Laurel said that is a really good entree into our topic today. Um, you know, she talked about in that webinar, there are the people who are just waiting for this to be over and the people who are evolving. Right. I, I was listening to a podcast with where Adam Grant was the guest and that was that was his thing. He was like, you know, mm-hmm. the people that are just waiting for this to be over are done. They're already done yeah. because because the old way isn't coming back. Whatever is next will be different than that in some capacity. Right. And we've talked about that here ad nauseum just with with working arrangements right that's never going to be the same as it was in 2019 ever again right working from home isn't a thing that you're going to have to be granted special one-off permission for in most organizations where that's knowledge worker organizations where that's a thing that's possible so in that mindset you know do i just wait for it to be over do i do a turtle do i put my head in the sand or do i evolve if you're evolving that takes resilience because it ain't going to be an easy run, right? You're going to have to get way out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to try some things that you've never tried before. You're going to have to think about things that make you uncomfortable. And speaking for myself, I'm doing all of those things right now, every day. And every day, it seems like there's another curveball that comes. Just when you think you can't deal with any more bullshit one more bullshit curveball comes in and and makes you rethink what your capacity to handle it is um and and that's resilience and you know i i was mindlessly doing the linkedin scroll one day and i stumbled on claire's ted talk on resilience thinking and i was like oh man that is that is good stuff i'm going to reach out to her she probably won't even respond to me because she's big and famous um so I reached out and here she is. So Claire Chase, Dr. Claire Chase is with us today. She's the creator of the Resilience Thinking Method, and she's going to share that with you guys today. She's also the founder of Resilience by Design Consulting. She's a strategist and she loves solving puzzles and finding patterns. And she uses that to leverage her clients into successful, resilient futures. She's been a consultant across many industries. She's been doing this for a while. She's a buff, so go buffs. She's a Denver local. And we are super excited to have Claire Chase with us today. Everybody, give her a warm TCB welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I feel like this conversation teed me up so well. So I have to say thank you to Laurel and Evans because exactly what you're talking about. I feel like the answer is resilience thinking method. (laughs) (laughs) See, not only do we do our homework, Claire, but we set you up for success. 
We have you, you and your best interest in mind. So why don't you share with the crew a little bit about you, your background? Why would anyone want to listen to Claire Chase talk? Um, and as you talk about your journey, your career arc, be sure to share with us any weird or, or noteworthy jobs or challenges that you've had along your path. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I started off as, you know, ever since I was little, I wanted to be a lawyer. And, um, and so I had this like fantasy of what that looked like and, you know, all of those pieces. Um, and so I, I think my, my first, like, I'm actually going to start off with a weird job if that's, (laughs) that's all right with you. Um, and so I was like, okay, I got to figure this out. I got this awesome opportunity to be an intern with the, um, department of assigned counsel for Pierce County that's in Tacoma, Washington. And I'm from Illinois. I, this is like a big adventure for me, um, to have this internship and it was an investigative intern. And so this really started off my career. Um, I got to have responsibilities that I didn't think that I should have as a 21 year old. Um, and, and one of those was delivering case files to our clients. And so, um, what, I, I remember getting this specific assignment to take the case files uh, to a client and to allow that that client to look through them, and and then I was given the location, and the um, I find out the location is a county jail, and I, my twenty one year old self is like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I've never had this experience, um, and and that was a really you know I remember it so clearly walking in, showing my badge, that stale air, um, like the clicks behind you at each checkpoint as you're walking Mm. through. And I probably was only there for like 15 minutes, (laughs) but it felt like a lifetime. And I think that this was like such a pivotal moment for me because I started getting this curiosity that, and understanding that, um, that I did like, I couldn't be naive anymore. And this, and as an investigative intern, I got to see things and, and, that um, the other people had experienced and understand their perspectives to know that I alone don't have all the answers, but if I have a, a curiosity an authentic curiosity in um, someone else's experience, someone else's journey, um, then I can better understand that. So I end up, you know, I don't have a law degree. I didn't, I realized I liked actually the research way more than the actual than being in prison. Yeah. Being yes. <laughs> or in the courtroom. Um, and um, so I took that with me and I, my first job was a, I was a consultant at a brand consulting firm. I loved that work. We did emotional inquiry, which is empathy research. So a lot of the things that, that I'm hearing everyone talk about uh, was really that asking questions about experience and about journey and, and not, and not only just taking on their language, but really understanding the role that businesses play or that products play in people's lives that you don't get to necessarily define as the business itself. Um, and I, that, that made me think I want to do this and, and help like not just these big brands, I want to help people. And so I went back um, into higher education and um, did just a ton of research around human interaction, um, around how do we actually cultivate community? How are we become successful through the telling of our experiences to one another? And are we capable of listening to those experiences from others? And I found out that it's actually really difficult. Okay, so it's really easy whenever those experiences mirror our own. Mm, uh, but mm-hmm. it's actually really difficult when someone shares something that we don't understand or agree with. 
And, right. um, and so what happens in these moments? Because we are inundated with information all of the time in our personal lives, but also in our professional lives. And businesses are inundated. They have so much data that they collect. Um, and we like to kind of go to the stuff that supports this. Is, I promise this is research backed. <laughs> <laughs> we go to the stuff that supports our, our ideas. Um, and we have a lot of trouble with the things that are, we call like uh, outliers or mm-hmm. um, speculation or, you know, like the fuzzy feelings and emotion. But those are things that are actually data points too that we need to pay attention to. And so my work is really about helping people um, process information better. And what that means is translated to businesses into process improvements, but not just in supply chains, uh, right. but also we're thinking about culture. How, how can you become more effective in can, allowing people to feel connected to each other and to the, the company in which they're employed? Um, how do you help people then in their, um, you know, then it's like, how many of you have actually had trouble figuring out what to include in like an email? Like to every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, and these are the types of questions. These are the problems that keep coming up. Um, and so it, one of my favorite um, projects I've worked on, which, you know, hopefully I'll get a chance to talk about later, really started with someone saying, Claire, can you help me? You're, you have a communication background. You study human interaction. What do I need to say to people? Um, and so it's like these, pro- these are the things that it's, it's in our talk that really help us build resilience and process information effectively. And um, we do that through the questions that we ask. And, and that's actually like a muscle we have to work to say, mm-hmm. okay, how do I ask this question that's a better, well, that's a more resilient question um, that's going to actually give me the information that I need to make an effective decision. Because, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll no, <laughs> I go I, on and on. <laughs> I love it. I love what you just said, just about questions. We, we had a guest on a few weeks ago, Michelle Tillis Letterman, and she wouldn't answer my what do you do question she flipped it on us and she said, I won't tell you what I do, but I'll tell you what I like to do. Mm-hmm. And we all went, Oh, and then she, she, she talked about her passion for animals and she ended up sharing this, her Facebook gallery of her for going back, you know, 20 years with pictures with exotic animals and her doing stuff. And we had this amazing conversation that we would have never had had she just told me about her work. Right. And that was, and that was super, super interesting. So talking about resilience, you know, settling in on that as your, as your thing, as your angle, Mm -hmm. that's a, that's a specialized thing. How did you land there? How did you decide, "Mm, this is my jam? Yeah. So I've always been really, like I mentioned, interested in how, how people talk to one another and, um, and really believe that we, we co-create realities. We co-create community, um, our relationships, but also our understandings of the world around us through what we say to one another. And, uh, and so this, you know, has been a, a key interest of mine. And then, you know, it was just like serendipity that I was asked to be on this National Science Foundation project with engineers and um, community planners and scientists that were interested in resilience. And so it was a I started studying the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. And it was really, yeah, yeah, it was amazing. It was an awesome opportunity. And I was so intrigued by, okay, so they have this 
amazing resources, they were able to get create a network of the best consultants across the world, engage a hundred city governments, and have them um, hire chief resilience officers, and and all of that. And people were still struggling to figure out how to actually engage in resilience wow. thinking and to process information effectively. And what I found was you can have all of the data, more all the data that you could ever imagine, the people that you could, you know, the best teams. But mm -hmm. if you don't help people, you know, process information and ask the right questions of that information, nothing happens. And so what happened was that Rockefeller Foundation actually pivoted and there were 100 Resilient Cities Network it's not, it's not in existence anymore. They created, you know, a new uh, project from it. And because they found that it wasn't doing that, it wasn't like, they just thought it would be magic. And we have the same assumptions uh, whenever we, you know, in our teams. So it doesn't have to be like, you can imagine this. And even like in our families or in, mm. in our like close relationships, we have these expectations about what's going to happen without really being clear and, and asking, okay, what am I learning from this? It really can be as simple as, asking yourself, what am I learning from this information? What does this information tell me about this, about my customers? What does this information tell me about the experiences of my employees, about my team? And, and it's, it's that kind of, it's that paired with knowing that we are always changing and we should be continuously going through these cycles. And this is the resilience thinking method, the cycle of both processing information and then applying it, finding the opportunities to innovate, even if it's so small, even if it's just asking a different question, but all the way up to uh, creating new processes or new products that really are, are speaking to the lives of the people that we, that we're impacting, our, our customers, our, our stakeholders, our, our employees. Um, and, and those things, you know, from the small words um, to like larger products like the iPhone <laughs> make a huge difference. Um, and so, so that's, that's really the power. And also recognizing that cyclical. So whenever you add something, you should also release. You have to release what's not working. And, and that's, that's hard. hard. Yeah. That's Jeez. the hard one. Yes, it is. It is it's totally hard. <laughs> So was that the the impetus to you deciding to create this method, this method for resilience yeah. thinking? Yeah. So what I found was um, on paper or when we're asked, how, what does it take to make a good decision? We know the steps. We know everything we should do. Uh, but then in practice, we don't we don't do any of those things. Um, right. And so <laughs> so so that so these things. OK, so this ability to. Um, that partnered with, okay, we actually, this is actually about learning. When we're processing information, we're learning. And we were taught to learn a certain way and that at a certain point it stops. And, and whether or not, you know, like we could say, oh no, I have a growth mindset. Um, the reality is that the way our, their schools are set up, we really like have this like mental, well, I don't have to, <laughs> to learn. I don't have to seek out information anymore. Um, yeah, because when I have to help my daughter with her math homework, I do not have a growth mindset. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, the, and I'm not trying to like put any shame on those things, but yeah. it's just a muscle again that we have to say, okay, we need to be authentically curious about these, this, these things that we don't understand rather mm -hmm. than what I found was we either walk away from it because we don't mm -hmm. understand it or don't agree with it, or we bulldoze and say, no, it's wrong. 
and neither of those things are actual listening. Um, you or, just or, described the political climate of the United States yes, right now. Yes. And that's, you know, I, um, and that's why I think this is actually so important. That's what's at stake is these much larger societal issues, things like democracy, uh, but also it boils down to our relationships. What does it mean if you know someone you're close to, a family member, and, and how many of you have a family member who doesn't agree or align with you politically? Yeah, I'm seeing lots of hands. <laughs> and in those moments, we have to just you have to make a decision. They've they've shared something that you don't understand or agree with, and you make a decision in that moment. And so our gut reaction are these, you know, the two things that I just mentioned about either walking away or bulldozing. Um, but what I suggest is if you ask a if you ask a different question, we can actually find okay, those commonalities, those values, because the research says that 95% um, of our values are the same, you know, across, you know, across the country, we, 90, we, we share 95% of the values. Um, and, and it's really that five, 5%, like that, that really we fundamentally don't agree with. So if we ask questions, we find out more information, we understand that we can unpack and understand the values embedded in what people are saying and then find connections. And then all of a sudden it'll be like a lightning bolt. I promise I've seen it happen in boardrooms and, um, and in my, the classes that I do where it's like, Oh, actually I should have said that or, or yeah, mm -hmm. now we can say that now we can ask that. Um, and that's the way forward. We were aligned with this whole time. We just weren't hearing each other. Um, yeah. and really, so it's about that learning and about designing or about taking action. So I um, firmly believe that right now we're doing a lot of learning. We're mm -hmm. spending a lot of time with ourselves, whether we are acknowledging that or not. <laughs> and right. I, I mean, and I, <clears throat> I like love a good self-help book, a good personal development book. Um, and, and so it's actually taking that, those things that we're learning and applying them. And, and that's critical is because we can't just keep learning without actually taking action. So building on that, applying it, tell us about the, the method, the resilience yeah. thinking method. Yeah. So, um, you know, for, so this is something that, that came out of, so the resilience thinking is actually comes out of ecology. So oftentimes you think about resilience and it's related to psychology and there are some beautiful approaches in terms of, um, trauma-based resilience and community resilience. Uh, but this approach is actually watching what nature does and how it survives fire, flood, um, all of these things. Um, and saying there are actually things that we can do to be more aware um, and, and to be like one step ahead. So thinking about transformation rather that it's like that, you know, change, you're either like dragged, dragged behind it, or you're, you know, one step ahead of it. And the resiliency method is really about helping you be one step ahead. And so what, what it does on a very fundamental level is say, let's, well, if someone says something or whenever you are, you know, given like a, a bad review from a customer or if something that you just can't make sense of, Let's let's pull let's unpack that to say what's in there. What are the values embedded in what's being said? And this is I you know I I have like full you know six week courses on this, so I want to just explain it succinctly today. Um, and then we find through those the connections across the values that you hold, or that the company holds, or that the leader holds, and the other whatever the other is, you can actually find an opportunity to maybe it's about fundamentally you both have fears around um your freedom or your mobility um or 
and it really boils down to kind of this lack of trust. And so the trust, the building trust becomes the opportunity and how you do that is all embedded in what they've already said um, about their experiences, about what it's like from their perspective um, to, you know, walk into the doors of a, um, of an establishment or to try to talk to someone over the phone about a problem that they're having. And this all comes through in what they're saying. And we just have to be better at understanding and, and unpacking what they're saying. Um, and then of course I have a whole strategic planning process that aligns with that too and, and has action. Action, you know, it's like very, it's, it's not, um, what's interesting is that cyclical nature <laughs> is fundamentally about building foundations, um, creating designs, Testing and retesting. Yeah. And then actually incorporating in this cycle, release and reflection. So actually incorporating release and reflection into every single process. And, you know, maybe it's quarterly, maybe it's uh, twice a year, um, but allowing things to actually be released, that we don't have to hold on to that anymore to free you up to see the innovation and the opportunity. And then it's, it's continuous so that all the information becomes useful and you pinpoint new things to focus on then um, for the new cycle. Is, is that, is that a way to help release them pinpointing the new things? Yeah. Because I think that it shows the excitement. It's the energy you, and you really should. And that's why I say like the energy is a data point. Where, mm -hmm. where's your team feeling energized? Um, where, what excites them? And, and I think that the oftentimes those things are, you know, dismissed for financial reasons or, you know, because it doesn't fit. Um, but I think that whenever you, what I what I do when I work with my clients is to say, let's take an issue landscape view. So think about it, not as these individual problems that have popped up, but that these problems are symptoms. I love, I think it was, uh, Laurel was talking about the iceberg. It's exactly it. That really what, whenever you see a problem or a, it's like, it's just the tip and underneath is this kind of enormous uh, mass of experience and perspective that really needs to be understood. Um, because what happens is that once you understand all of the, how all of these things are working together, information that doesn't seem like it connects, then you see the opportunity that's gonna be transformative and innovative. Um, and I love, I love when clients get it because then it's like a light bulb. It's, yeah. It, and, and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, these programs, well, we'll progress them out. I mean, we can't just you know, totally take them away right away. Uh, but all these things and they're small changes, uh, like what to write in the email, but they're also big changes. Like, no, actually our clients really need this product. Mm -hmm. Um, or our leaders need to approach it this way. We need to have list listening sessions that ask these questions. Um, and it's, it's really, a, it's a, it sounds hard and you know, I'm, I'll admit <laughs> that it is, but it's also a really fun process. Yeah. That's, so that's sorry, good, Lori. The, the releasing things, the letting things go makes me think about, so our organization is very focused on innovation and we have a, a framework that we use for it. And um, one, of, one of the big pieces that we run into a lot is people get really attached to their idea and they get really attached to their project and, and it becomes very personal. And so then it becomes very hard when you know statistically like 95% of innovation ideas don't go anywhere. So right. you're stepping into 
super high percentage of this isn't going to work <laughs> yeah. yet. It's still really hard for people to, to let go because they view it. Like they wonder, am I going to be seen as a failure? Cause my project wasn't chosen or my idea didn't work or, you know, what, how, how will I be perceived with that? And, and we keep just trying to reframe that to say, it's not about failing. It's about what did you learn? What yeah. did you learn in the process? And that's the value you take from it. Not, the idea necessarily that turned into a thing, but it's the collection of going through that process and all of the things that you learn and you share with other people. So all the time I invested in this thing, I share with other people so they don't have to go down that same investigation. And, but the, but the letting go piece super hard for people to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's so important. And, um, it's such a, a great thing to bring up because if we focus on, the problem and then finding solutions to that problem, it creates that kind of attachment. Oh, well, this is a great, my idea is the best idea. And then it's more about selling that idea. But if it's about understanding the landscape of experiences of stakeholders or the landscape, um, so that could be like customers um, or employees or, you know, boards or, you know, whatever it could be. But um, if it's about understanding their experience fundamentally, then the opportunities that pop up will be so undeniably aligned that we are all coming together to help create that one thing that, that really just aligns so perfectly with the experience. And then it actually ends up, which I, I love seeing this, it ends up addressing like not just one problem, but like eight problems that you didn't even know you had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I, yeah, I think that whenever we, we have such like a problem focused view and the problem is the start, but it's not the, it's not the finish. It's, and I think that that's a huge shift that um, I'm always advocating for that. I see these really innovative companies. They're not focused on problems. Yeah, they might fix a bug uh, and that kind of thing, but they're focused on the opportunity to create a better experience for whoever they're they're working for, um, or whoever they're they're aligned, you know, like seeking out that alignment. And and I think that that's why these like the that kind of competitive nature comes in, and it's harder to release, but it's it's actually quite wonderful to release things whenever you can, you have a common goal when you have um, the ability to see the full picture. Well, and that's the other piece I think of when you talk about release is having a clear strategy that, and we've talked about this before, I think in this group too, it's not just what you're going to do. It's what you're not going to do. And when you find something that you're not going to do or your strategy changes, because the marketplace is shifting, then it's a lot easier for people to swallow their pride a little bit and say, oh yeah, mine's no longer relevant. If everybody has that same clear vision Mm -hmm. um, that we're not going to make all of our money off of super high late fees anymore, Blockbuster. Mm -hmm. Um, But if nobody has the guts to say that, or if that strategy isn't clear, then that's when all those egos get tied up in it. Yeah. So, yeah, it just, sorry, go ahead, Claire. Oh, no, it it, it was about the <laughs> silo. Wait, I wanted to go like way back to when Laura was talking about silos. So let's move forward. <laughs> well, <clears throat> talking about this method, um, I'm, I'm wondering if you have a favorite client success story of using this method. Yeah. So I um, have a, 
favorite project that I worked on because it's near and dear to my heart. Um, it was with a early childhood education nonprofit. Um, and, and they, they're actually one of the ones that came to me and said, um, Hey, could you help us with our emails? Like you under, you were late, you have little kids, like, what should we write? I mean, parent, we can see parents are not opening these up and they're not even doing any of the things that we have inside. Um, and, and so I said, yeah, I can 100% tell you what to write, um, but we have to do the resilience thinking method. And that means that we're going to unpack it all and you're probably going to get way more than that. <laughs> um, and so what we did is that, you know, I have a, I'm very stakeholder driven. So we decided to talk to both parents and teachers. And part of that is to say, what is the experience? You know, if we're thinking about, okay, what to write to an emails to parents, then we really need to know their experience and, and what it's like to be a parent in Denver right now looking for childcare. And, um, has anyone here had that experience lately where you've tried to find childcare in this Denver Boulder area? Yes. Okay. So it is terrible. It is stressful. Um, it's competitive. Um, it's, and you know, that's, that's just like finding a place and finding a spot at a place that doesn't even like account for actually dropping your child off at a place where you've never seen, especially in a, in a COVID world. Um, you can't even go in to the school and, you know, you're meeting the teacher like outside the door. Um, and, and so it's really understanding like, okay, what is that experience like? What does it take them to walk in the door for a tour, but then to engage them at each, each part of the way? And then what is it like for the, also from the teacher's point of view, in what ways are they engaging caregivers as well or engaging the parents? And um, when, as we walked through that process and, and what I love to do is actually, you know, they, and they have a ton of data. They know the incomes of all of their parents, you know, from that all the way to, um, like, uh, I think the, you know, the homelessness rates, you know, they're collecting so much data because they are funded by, um, federal and, and state sources, but they didn't really understand this like story, hearing it from the parents themselves. And so we partnered what I love to do is partner different types of data that usually doesn't come together. Mm. Um, and what happened was I saw immediately this, you know, the, all the directors in the room and there was just a light bulb, like I said before, that went off and they realized, Oh, we say we're a two generational model. How and way, what ways are we actually helping parents and caregivers be a part of this journey? Because they're actually the ones who bring the student into the classroom and they make the choice whether the student goes to school or not. So they're actually an incredibly important stakeholder that, you know, we're not, they're not opening our emails because we are not, we didn't align our, our mm -hmm. sites to actually serving them. And so that was just a huge shift, which, which actually allowed for them to kind of, again, like release the expectation around email and focus on creating programs that actually serve parents and the needs that they were experiencing. Like, wow. like the, a child who, you know, talking from personal experience, uh, <laughs> tantrums, whenever you drop what? off, <laughs> whenever you drop off and pick up. So it's not necessarily, they do want to stay with you, but they also just don't want to like leave wherever they are. Right. <laughs> so, and then how do you actually help them feel comfortable and feel like they're still a good parent? Um, and that this is a good thing for their child because yeah, as soon as they walk in, it's child focused. The whole, the whole mm -hmm. school is incredibly child focused. But 
to kind of neglect this incredibly important stakeholder. Um, and I'm not saying that they were, they obviously had programs in the past. They recognize this, but to become more centered on that experience. Um, and that is one of my favorite examples because it was really about just understanding, okay, now we design, we, we kind of retest it. We talk to people again and engage, how does this actually work within your life? And then, you know, go into launch and then releasing the things that weren't working, the, the meetings that were, you know, at terrible times for uh, a working parent um, that just didn't align with the realities of, of what it was like to be, you know, living in this, this area at this time. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I love the idea that, you know, this reaffirms what Laurel mentioned in her mm-hmm. recap of the webinar. Presenting symptoms aren't always indicative of underlying disease, right? Yeah, absolutely. This, this wasn't about emails, right? It had nothing no. to do with emails, really. Um, that was the presenting symptom. But just being able to take these more social processes and think about them as systems, you know, when you talk about this method, I, I grew up in software companies, right? So it's like software development, right? It's treating these social processes as systems and looking at them in, in a little bit more of a detached way versus being so immersed in them, um, which makes me think about, you know, as I was looking through what Resilience by Design does, you have some really interesting conversational ways to connect to this work. Can you talk a little bit about them, where we can find them and participate in them? Because I'm going to sign up for them. I can tell you that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I love working with clients that are, you know, in these like teams, leaders, um, you know, company-wide projects. Um, But my kind of passion area is because it all starts with our talk. So it all starts with the individual. And, um, and so what I've created is are these resilience conversations. And I actually had one last night and it was magical. I like the, when I promise it's like, you don't realize, I think that we, we do this thing where we're we're like processing all the time and we don't just take a time to step back and actually reflect on what, what, what our beliefs are, what our values are. Um, What was the topic last night? Yeah. It was called making sense of the senseless. And so the idea was, and in each each month, it's a new kind of spin on it. Um, and so last night was about, um, you know, that those are senseless things that people might have said to you that you just can't let go of. So I'm sure you you could think of that like some cutting remark someone made to you in 1995 that you just can't get out of your head, uh, and and you maybe you replay it every once in a while now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we spend so much energy on that. So that was an awesome. Um, an event. The next one is about the leadership in trying times. So understanding, you know, you know, what is it, what is resilience leader? What does resilient leadership look like? And there's some really key principles, uh, but how do you actually enact them? And I think that that's when we see these articles about resilience, that's the thing that always gets me. It's like, yes, we can learn. Okay, great. I love having those seven characteristics, but tell me how to create that. We got to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so and that's, where do, that's my pet peeve. We got to go to action. Right. So where do we go to sign up for oh, this? Oh, yes. Thank you. It's resiliencebydesign.net is my website. And I have all the events on there. And then you can actually just purchase a ticket um, right away um, on the site. And so, yeah, it's all it's all there. And actually, and um, in a couple of weeks, I'll launch. So it's it's up there through April. So it's resilient leadership is the next one. And then the, and after that, it's habits that create change. So actually engaging that action. Um, and then 
every month it'll, it'll rotate between like a business focused or a leadership focused topic and then a personal topic. Awesome. Deborah actually put the link in the chat for everybody. Thank you. I will, I will make sure it's in the show notes and I will put it up on the, on the bartender network. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. This has been amazing. More applause for Claire. It was my pleasure. We have, we have a couple of questions. There's one in the chat. It was from Hillary. She said, so is your work with clients specifically focused on product service innovation versus say their organizational culture and building resilience into the culture? What, um, so actually I've done projects in both. Um, what's beautiful about this approach is that, that it scales up, um, because it's about the person. It is inherently about relationship and organizational culture building. And so whenever I do even, a, you know, talking about product innovation, it inherently comes back to the people because it's a systems approach. And that means that mm -hmm. we're all connected, that the people who make the product are a part of and, and, and just intrinsically related to the product that they create. And so, you know, it's really through the, the process that you, you are able to build resilience and it inherently builds trust, understanding. Um, and then those things are like those characteristics. Um, I love the, the idea of like humi the humility and, um, and that all comes through whenever you take this approach to both authentic curiosity and empowered action. So, so it really depends. Like someone will say, okay, here's a um, problem I have. I want to be more efficient. Um, or I want, we know we need to create something new. And then I say, okay. And then we take the step back and it's like the whole view comes in. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Any other questions from the crew for Claire? I won't play the whole song. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you do, Claire, how can we reach you? How can we get a hold of you? Yeah, I think Evans had a question. Unless, oh. yeah, real quick, because I know I know you were about to sound the buzzer. Um, but uh, so have you have you done a lot of research around like um, like what was it? Grit by Angela Duckworth, and then I don't know. It, it kind of goes over into a different space, but. The notion mm -hmm. of anti-fragility from from Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Have you dipped your toes into into that space as well? Yeah. So I have an uh, you know awareness. I think that we're kind of like working in parallel. Um, <laughs> what what happened? What I really focus on is the action piece. So what do you say in these moments? So you're working on a team. You want to create X, Y, or Z. Um, this these are the things that you ask these are the things that you say um and this is so the my research is really focused on communication what works well and what doesn't what shuts down conversations what opens them up um and and that's and of course i you know you know i really respect their work i just think we're looking at it from different perspectives mm -hmm. there's a a very like psychological um approach and sometimes i think that 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 leads us to think that it's just like magic um that we become resilient just like something happens where we've had this, <laughs> this, this trauma, this experience, and we're able to overcome because, you know, and, and I think that, um, plan B I'm blanking on the name of the author, um, this CEO of Facebook. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. She has some wonderful, beautiful things. And she's talking about resilience too. Um, yeah. and it, there, 
and it's really focused on like this psychological mindset. I'm also talking about mindset, but in a way that's very tangible and approachable. Um, and that really gets you to, to not only, okay, change our minds, but change what we say, because what we say is the reality of our, of our teams, of our organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, when people talk, we need to listen to them and about what they're saying about themselves and about the, where they work and what they do. So, so that's, we just, I think we come at it from different lenses. Oh no. Cool. Okay. Love it. Thanks. So Claire, how do we get a hold of you if we oh, yes. want to follow up? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, um, at Claire Chase PhD, um, in the Denver area. I am on Instagram at resilience.by.design. And oh. you can always... Oh, your Instagram has a really cool feature oh, yeah. on there. I know so much. Uh, Profiles of Resilience. I interview thought leaders and uh, business leaders in various fields to see how they define resilience and um, like what what they're doing. And usually their work is so amazing. Um, and so love, love that thing. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, <laughs> and I also have a podcast called Meet the Moment, which is about also bring in different perspectives and learning from other people's journeys about a variety of different topics. And so right now, um, their next topic is going to be about community. And so how do people, you know, again, this magic thing that happens, how do people actually build it? Um, and, and what did it take and what was it like? So, um, and now of course you can email me at Claire at resiliencebydesign.net. Awesome. Thank you so much, Claire. Thanks for being with us today. This has been amazing. We are going to to do our end stuff. I know we've gone a little bit over time and I apologize for that, but the conversation was too good. I didn't want to stop it. Even Evans couldn't hold back. <laughs> hey, Eric. And, yes. There's a question on the chat. What is the Insta account again? They can't find it. Oh, okay. sorry. I'm, I'm typing it right now. It's resilience.by.design. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, Mariah. All right, let's do our funny things. Today's funny things. Funny tweets from this week. Every day I wake up and begin the 16 hour process of getting ready for bed. That's me. <laughs> right? I know Ruby and I were on a call today and, and the person that we were on with said, we have our daytime jammies and our nighttime jammies. <laughs> really, that's really what we do. <clears throat> Number two, I like it when a friend asks me for my address. It's usually because they're sending me a gift, but sometimes I'm like, what if they're sick of my shit and they're coming to kill me? It's exciting either way. <laughs> and this is 2021. The most 2020 21 rejection ever. You're real cool. However, I found someone who's also vaccinated. So I think we might want to minimize our bubble and stay safer in these trying times. Oh, this next one made me laugh. I've been doing my parents' food shopping since March. And today it dawned on me that they go through a full can of whipped cream every week. They're in their 70s and 80s. And I'm afraid to ask them what the fuck is going on. <laughs> Oh dear. Number the next one. This one made me laugh because of the whole Jewish space laser thing. And I'm a Star Wars guy. Why are they calling it Jewish space laser when Death Star of David is right there? <laughs> and, and my favorite funny thing of the of the week, it's a cat thing. And this was actually a video. And if you could watch the video, it's hilarious because 
the cat is trying to drink and the caption is so my cat's an idiot and the water is cascading over his head and he's just licking just as fast as he can and getting nothing (laughs) um this week's feel good story um you guys ever been to chick-fil-a during rush hour anybody (laughs) been to chick-fil-a during or i've driven by a chick-fil-a during rush hour so this was the story Um, This was in Georgia. A Chick-fil-A manager was called by the mayor of the city to come in and deal with the traffic at their vaccination site. Mm -hmm. Right? That's the guy right there. He put into practice all the things they do every day at Chick-fil-A, and he took the two-hour wait down to less than 10 minutes. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) And... And today's semi-quarantine cocktail, it's the double mask. This is a riff on the brown sugar old-fashioned. Double masks can block 92% of infectious particles, according to a CDC study out yesterday. You need a table, a teaspoon, rather, of packed brown sugar. You need to remember it's about tighter fit and eliminating leakage. Get your minds out of the gutter, you dirty <laughs> bastards. <laughs> Tablespoon of water, nodding. Knotting the ear loops in front of your ears so that you can make the mask flatter on your face. Mm -hmm. Two dashes of Angostura bitters. And this fact really caught me by surprise. 72% of Americans are now actually wearing masks all the time in public. Wow. It took us a long time to get here, but we're here. You need a little bourbon and you need to put your damn nose back in the mask. Right, Laurel? A little orange peel and a cinnamon stick for garnish. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks to Claire for being here today. Thanks to you. A round of applause for all you guys. You guys are amazing. Wednesdays are my favorite days and you're my favorite people. I love you all. We will see you again next week. Reach out to Claire, connect with her, sign up for some of the conversations. I think they're going to be fantastic. And if you have questions for her, Go ahead and shoot them her way. I'll put all the links in the show notes and put them out on the Bartender Network. You guys have a fantastic evening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you had a good time and learned a thing or two at today's happy hour, please share it with your friends. If you want to join our tribe, head on over to skyteam.cloud forward slash TCB or email us at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again, and remember, you've always got friends at the Corporate Bartender.